The best place for Columbia College news. I'll give my life for this cause, and I will die for this cause. Covering the stories Chicagoans care about. They are calling for one Chicago. This is Chronicle Headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Chronicle Headlines. I am your host, Blaze Mesa. Later on in the show, we will be discussing Mid-90s, a film produced by Jonah Hill, a part-time faculty rally, and a photo feature on gun violence. But first, a tour through Lincoln Park is unearthing a forgotten past. There are still bodies still buried somewhere in the south end of Lincoln Park. That was Norman Radel, former leader of the Lincoln Park docent program for 10 years, and he's currently a volunteer at the Alfred Caldwell Lily Pool. The Garden of the Dead walking tour teaches visitors about a time when Lincoln Park was a cemetery. Pamela Banos leads the tour and began looking through the Chicago Tribune's digital archives in 2007. Banos would search keywords such as Chicago Cemetery or City Cemetery and soon discovered articles that covered bones and human remains found in Lincoln Park. This was Chicago's only cemetery, so everybody who lived in Chicago was buried in this ground um, from 1845 until 1859. And the records that I found showed that 35,000 people were buried there, which I thought was mind-boggling that we didn't have this history of our entire first generation. The tour starts at the Chicago History Museum and walks past monuments such as the Lincoln and Benjamin Franklin Monuments, the Couch Tomb, the South Pond, and Potter's Field. The tour steps off October 23rd and 30th. Our second story this week is about the 40th anniversary of Hair Trigger. Hair Trigger is the literary anthology of Columbia's writers' workshops. Jamise Adams is an editor of Hair Trigger 40, the 40th edition of Hair Trigger. It's a legacy here. It's a tradition, and it's not going to stop. I think that's why they're doing this event. An event celebrating its anniversary will take place October 24th in the library, 624 South Michigan Avenue, and will feature all of the past 40 covers of Hair Trigger. Moving on to our next story, a nonprofit organization is helping pay off student debt through volunteerism. Shared Harvest Fund launched in June this year, and their goal? To help pay off $20 million in student debt through volunteer work by 2020. Brianna DeQueer is one of the three founders of Shared Harvest Fund and said the group noticed the negative side effects student debt had on people, which inspired the trio to launch the nonprofit. The goal of this is to make it uh, convenient for professionals who already have busy jobs. We want you to say, hey, instead of spending that extra four hours working at a job that you may or may not even like, why don't you do, spend that four hours doing something for a nonprofit organization? Shared Harvest Fund would one day like to become part of the Agenda for Sustainable Development that was released by the UN in 2015. The nonprofit partners with other groups to help achieve their goals, including Global Girls Incorporated, an organization that helps young girls learn life skills, said Marvinette Woodley Penn, the group's founder. We need so much help because we have a small staff. We yeah. do a lot of work, but we have a small staff, so we can't do all these things. And she's like, well, I've got the perfect solution. I'm like, yay, um, because this is a way of sharing resources and benefiting both partners. Sequeer said the group uses a student's major to determine what ways they can volunteer. Students can apply to volunteer on Shared Harvest Fund's website. 
Moving forward here, we have a podcast exclusive coverage of Mid-90s, a film directed by Jonah Hill and produced by Jonah Hill, Scott Rudden, Ken Kao, and Eli Bush. Mid-90s is a film about people using skating to escape the reality of their life at home. This film really shows, no matter who you are, what situation you're in, how low you feel, there's always going to be some genuine people out there who are willing to take you in. And for Stevie, it was a skate, the skate community, which it is in real life. I would like to welcome into the studio Miranda Manier and Zach Jackson, who both worked on the story and were able to sit down with the cast and talk about the film. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Blaze. Fantastic. How are you? Yeah, Zach, this is your first time on the podcast. How's it feel? You're I feel, al- right I feel alive. I feel alive. <laughs> yeah? You're feeling good? You're feeling good? That's good. We're all kicking. That's right. Yeah. So... First things first, we got a film here. Who are the characters in it? Yeah, so um, Mid-90s is primarily about uh, this character Stevie, played by Sonny Soljic. Um, He is a 13-year-old boy who has kind of a rough home life. Um, He has a single mom and a brother who has some struggles of his own, and he takes it out on Stevie a lot. Um, So Stevie is kind of looking for a found family, and he finds one in... Uh, this group of four young guys who all skate. Um, and it's just about them coming together and learning about themselves and learning how to handle relationships. And it's skateboarding. That's correct. Like, yes, yeah, yeah so it's, it's skateboarding. it's not figure skating, it's not rollerblading, no. nothing. Mm-mm. So skateboarding. Skateboarding, yeah. So there's it's four guys and Stevie, so five total people yes. is where it centers around. Yeah. Okay, okay, so what... I kind of want to know, what did the cast say it was like working with Jonah Hill? Yeah, so actually, something really interesting about the cast, um, only Stevie, out of the five young characters, had been in a movie before, or even acted well, it before. It like a whole new team there. Yeah, exactly. So all of them, including including Sonny Soldier, who played Stevie, had skateboarded before. They were all skateboarders, but the, um, the group of friends that he gets inducted into had never acted before. Um, they pretty much just said that there was a casting call for skateboarders, not necessarily actors. They all went to it. Um, and Jonah was really just looking for people who could be natural and be like comfortable on screen mm-hmm. and be themselves. Um, and then he kind of worked with them to flesh themselves out a little bit more and turn it into full characters, um, which I just thought was really cool. Yeah, so people with like literally zero acting experience, first gig, there's Jonah Hill. Yeah, oh, I know, my. right? Yeah, we do actually have some of the audio from that round table that you guys were at. It's not so much a round table, but the group discussion where you guys were at. And uh, I think one of the, the actors talked about, you know, the first time with Jonah. I wasn't like pressured or anything. It was, it was a, Jonah made it a great environment to where everybody really got along and we all became friends and, uh, and all that. So again, that was some of the cast members speaking about uh, acting with Jonah Hill. Is Jonah Hill a skater guy? Is that, is that the inspiration behind this film? I mean, I had assumed that Jonah might have had a skating background because directors usually try to make films regarding things that, uh, that have happened in their mm-hmm. past, but um, we, we don't really know where the so inspiration we, we, came we from. can't confirm. One day he's like, skate film, let's do this. That's right. My guess is that the inspiration was the hit Nickelodeon television show Rocket Power. Yeah, my That's what I assume. Rocket Power? You've never heard of that? I don't really actually know that. That was kind of before my time. Oh, man. Great show. The Chronicle wholeheartedly endorses Rocket Power. We do. (laughs) 
I mean, I don't know if I can wholeheartedly endorse it. I've the multimedia desk of the Chronicle. We're endorsing it. Yes. It's endorsed? It's endorsed. Okay. It's unofficially, officially <laughs> endorsed. So was this Jonah Hill's first time as a director or producer? Um, so it was it was his first time directing and actually writing a uh, feature. So um, he had worked on the story for a couple movies before, like Sausage Party, um, but this is the first time writing the full script to a movie and directing a full movie as well. Okay, good. So he was throughout the whole process. Yeah. Because I know I've seen his, his byline, so to speak, on other movies and other places, but those were in smaller roles, and this was the first... Yeah, yeah, he's definitely produced movies before, and like I said, he's worked on, like, the story development for some movies, but um, this was the first time that it was, like, his baby. Like, he wrote the entire script, and he directed it, so he was involved for the entire process. Hmm. It's his... That's getting that IMD page. Yeah. Another credit mm-hmm. smacked down there. I know. Yeah. It's a three-for-one. Mm-hmm. It's a, th- a three-for-one? He wrote it. Produced it and directed it. Yeah. Yeah, but it'd only be the one credit, wouldn't it? <laughs> no, 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 he gets all the bylines. Yeah, but in IMDb, they would do three separate things. Oh yeah, I believe so. Because yeah. it categorizes it. Not to break down IMDb for these listeners, but it's it's there's like written credits, there are acting credits, there are directing credits. Well, He's got them all. As you can imagine, I'm the journalism major. No idea what, <laughs> what's going on here. I got a film major and a TV major mm-hmm. over here. Probably know a little bit more than I do. We've got about a minute left here before I have to let you guys go, and I'd be remiss if I did not ask, when does it come out and where can we see it? Yeah, so it it comes out, uh, it came out rather, October 19th, um, so it should be available in theaters near you today. Um, it is through A24, which is kind of an independent company, so it might have a limited release, um, but if you, if you Google it, you should be able to find it. So it's in, it's in theaters? Yes, okay, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's not like on Vimeo or Netflix no, or anything? No, no. Like, you should so you, be able to find it. You can pay the price of admission. That's yeah, true. Stuff. How long is it? Like, that's so, an odd question. It's I a short one. It's, yeah, it's, it's only 80 minutes. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So it's it's uh, well worth it. I, I really I got to see a screening of it, and I really enjoyed it. I would recommend it. You got to see a screening? I did, okay, yeah. Okay, here. Before we go, Yeah. What was not, not to give away too much or mm-hmm. promote it or anything, but what was it like? You know? Um. You know, it... I, I found it really touching because the way it focuses on the friendships of these five guys, um, it's not something that you see in movies a lot. You don't get to see emotional male friendships, and I thought they did a really good job. And then for Jonah's first time, not half Yes, bad? oh yeah, great job. Okay, well, Miranda, Zach, thank you for coming in today. Thank you, Blaze. Thank you. This campus is in desperate need of measures to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because Dr. Kim's administration promotes a racist and sexist culture, he creates a hostile environment where the most socially marginalized voices are silenced and disregarded. That was Diana Valera, adjunct professor in the photography department and president of CFAC. CFAC rallied October 17th at 600 South Michigan and called for the resignation of president and CEO Dr. Kwong Woo Kim. CFAC claimed Kim and his administration allowed a culture of sexism and racism at the college. However, Michelle Hoffman, adjunct professor in the Science and Mathematics Department, handed out flyers at the event that said Diana Valera is part of the problem, not the solution. They described a bunch of things regarding, you know, racism and uh, sexual 
discrimination. And those are really, really serious issues. Those also aren't really things that PFEC bargains for. Um, you know, not to say that the university shouldn't be addressing these issues if there are in fact any, but it also has not been my experience that we've had these problems of racism. In the studio, I have Olivia Deloyan and Tessa Brubaker, who reported on this story. How are you guys doing today? Great. How are you, Blaze? Oh, I'm I'm doing good, <laughs> but uh, we have two sides of the story here. So we have CFAC, and then we have the college administration in and of itself. So why did CFAC hold this conference uh, or this press conference this past week? Um, basically, they were just uh, calling to action that they would like Dr. Kim to resign, um, alleging that him his administration is allowing a culture of both sexism and racism on uh, the college campus, as well as um, not hiring uh, faculty of color as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I think. Uh, Michelle Hoffman, a professor in the science and mathematics department, even kind of pointed out that some of these claims may or may not be true. Or did she say that I think they were females in her department, there was a female chair in her department and all that stuff like that? Yeah, she had said within the science and math department that she knows it's extremely diverse, both with uh, gender identity as well as just um, ethnicity and things mm -hmm. like that, and that there's mostly women. It's led by um, a woman um, who's Iranian, I believe she had said. So she didn't really understand um, their argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, her, her thing was that um, she just never saw that kind of culture at Columbia. <laughs> but CFAC was saying that it's like a, a campus-wide thing, is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay, okay. So then, did they call for any sort of action, or did they want something to be done at the press conference? I think the main action, um, like you said earlier, was for the dismissal of Dr. Kim and his administration. Um, as far as action, I think that was I the think, big one. Yeah, pretty um, much. But... What else? When we spoke with um, next, uh, sorry, Prexy Nesbitt um, afterwards, he said that um, a strike may be in the future and with CFAC. What is Nesbitt's position in CFAC again? He's the. He's in CFAC, though, right? Yes. yes. Oh, okay, okay. I just want to make sure um, clear. He is like the president of diversity or something oh, along yes, the lines of, of the, that okay. within CFAC. It's not his exact title, but that's pretty close. But him and Valera were at least speaking saying that you know the college isn't as diverse as it should be correct yes but then what were some of professor hoffman's kind of counterpoints to that uh yeah hoffman as you mentioned said that uh, diana valera is actually part of the problem um she said that she believes that uh, P CFAC, I should say, is using students um, sort of unprofessionally that and what they're bargaining for is not actually what they were speaking on yesterday at the um, conference. Yeah, that, that last thing was the most interesting to me because I know she mentioned in your article that as far as diversity and inclusion, all that stuff, that's more of a federal regulation, federal guidelines, and not so much a part-time faculty union um, complaint. Am I correct in that? Yes. Okay, got it. So then, how has the college's relationship and CFAC been in the past couple of years then? Um, there's been several strikes, I know. I'm not exactly sure how many. I know last year, what was that, in November? 
2017? So, yeah, I believe it was November 2017 they held a two-day strike outside of the 600 building. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of last semester, I believe in April, they held a rally for a couple hours before they went into a bargaining session. So, so they have, they've had a couple strikes and then a bargaining session. For those who may not be aware, is that for a new contract or yes. what was that for exactly? For a new contract. And then do you remember what they were complaining about specifically? It was, I, I know it was something with shrinking class sizes oh, or? Yeah, um, raising tuition, mm -hmm. um, taking away some of the classes that make Columbia what it is, um, not caring enough about its students and acting more like a corporate business than a college. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if That's there's anything else. I think, I think yeah. then you could always, if Not you're treating now, yeah. the, um, for what they say, um, well, they used to be called part-time faculty union, now they're Columbia Faculty Union, but not treating them with respect during bargaining sessions. Okay, and then uh, you can always read that at ColumbiaChronicle.com for any past reporting, but Proxy Nesbitt said there could be a strike in the future? Yes. Did he elaborate any more? Was it simple as that? Simple as that. There is no actual plans, but basically if they don't get what they want, he says there will be a big strike. And then I don't actually know this, but are the college and C or CFAC bargaining now? Are they still bargaining from the last time, or have they reached a contract? They're still bargaining. They're still bargaining? It's ongoing, yeah. Okay, and then how long have that's been what? So it was last April is when they started? I'm not sure the exact timeline. Um, but it's been I over believe the it's been over a year oh, um, okay. of them bargaining, but I'm, I'm not sure of the exact timeline. Okay, okay. And so then, looking more specifically at this last, it was a press conference or was it more of like a, a rally? Or it's a a it was a press conference. It wasn't a rally, yeah. So they had um, students speaking during it, um, they had several CFAC members. Um, they had the uh, fa part-time faculty union leader from University of Illinois at Chicago. Mm -hmm. And um, Diana Valera spoke during it. Um, I think that's yeah, around it. Yeah, just a lot it. of yeah. CFAC members. They had some guests from UIC, as you mentioned. Um, just some, uh, some students were there showing their support as well. Um, yeah. Okay, was it, uh, we got about a minute here left. Was it a rather busy, I don't, I don't wanna say busy, but if they've had multiple um, strikes and protests in the past, was this one as well received by some of the members of CFAC in the student body? I would say there was a decent amount of people there. A lot of people, um, they called in the beginning for people who were supporting them to stand behind them, and there was mm -hmm. a lot. I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know the amount, but it seemed like there was a lot of people um, there in support for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Tessa, Livy, thank you for coming in today. Thank you. Over to our final story this week. It's a feature on gun violence. This representative, she loved the ocean, she loved the beach, she loved swimming, she was a little mermaid, she loved the mermaid. She'll see me cry because of a movie, she's like, Mom, how many times have you seen that movie? Like 20 times <laughs> and you're still crying? You know, and I think, and now that I think about it, I just, I just think that she just didn't like seeing people hurt. On October 19th, 2014, Alexandria Imani Burgos was shot and killed while sitting in her own kitchen. Alexandria was shot in the head and pronounced dead an hour later. And my son this is hysterical on the phone. We couldn't even understand him. He was crying. And he's like, Alice got shot. But we didn't understand because he was somewhere where it was safe. They were in a home. They were where nothing could happen. Milagros and Rafael went to the hospital where they would later learn that their daughter had died. To think about her because we think about her every second, every second. We think about her every second. So this is the pain we go through. This is 
what we don't want other people to to go through because nobody should go through this nobody should go through the pain of having their child or their loved one taken away the case still remains open in the studio i have orlando pinder and this story that uh, you covered this week is in the center spread of the chronicle and it's not just about one individual shooting is that correct right so it's more about uh, a mother's loss um the story centers around uh the mother yes. and um her it, grief. it's physically about like the incident that happened when um she was shot in october but it's not just about the shooting what happened and it's not like a crime report it's about kind of what happened after and the sure. path of the mother sure yeah we um I, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine, you know, going through a situation like this, but Miss um, Burgos has, you know, dedicated so much of her time after this happened to uh, working to prevent gun violence and working so that other mothers won't have to, to go through this. Yeah, so she's actually been speaking at events and stuff right. like that, and did, if I'm not mistaken, in your story, she went all the way to Washington a couple times and is... um. She did something specific with with a photo of her daughter. I, I was a little unclear on that, so can you clear that up? What did she do with her daughter's photo? Sure. She would leave politicians uh, a letter telling them what happened to her daughter as well as a photo of her daughter uh, so they could sort of see who she was um, and what kind of impact she could have had. Um, which she, Let me rephrase that. She did have a great impact in her life. Um, she was loved at her school. She was... Uh, loved by friends and family so yeah and then how many times has she been to washington do you happen to know i don't know the exact number of times she's been to washington but i do know um that she travels around quite regularly um soon um so it's speaking engagements kind of across the country is it uh I'm, i'm well i mean coming up she's she's going to an event in boston um called Mothers for Justice and Equality, um, and they're speaking on what can be done in Chicago, um, as well as another event uh, in Washington uh, to lobby for, um, well, I guess, I don't know, would you say lobby for Newtown, Connecticut, or lobby against the shootings in Newtown, Connecticut? I mean, I think you'd say more lobby for right. gun control, but I know when we say gun control, people kind of think they want to take away, you know, every single gun. But that's not the case with um, with these people. Is that correct? It's quite interesting, actually. Um, they're, they're, that is not the case at all. Um, they spent a long time talking with me about how they're, they're, I mean, they're really not for banning all weapons. Far from that. They think if you are a good citizen and you have a you know a clean mental health record and you show that you are responsible enough to own a weapon um, after going through uh, proper background checks you should be able to own um, a firearm now they believe that you should under no circumstance be able to own an assault style weapon so i think they even talked about like those are used in wars right i mean you're not in a war you're in a a suburb of chicago or wherever you happen to live that you just don't need that that's what they were saying it's ridiculous that um let me backtrack on that (laughs) it's 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 hard to think of anyone 
being able to justify having an assault-style weapon in the city of Chicago. Now, if you were um, out in a broader area, if you were out in Arizona or something, and maybe for some reason, you know, I don't know, maybe for some reason... But, I mean, there's probably more shooting galleries, or not shooting, exactly, shooting ranges yeah, right. and things like that. But uh, back to what they were saying, it's like, again, we're, we're not fighting wars here. Like, there's people over the place, and that's the, the one thing they were kind of trying to make sure people didn't have as easy access to. But back, sure. Yeah, back to her. So you followed her story on through, and it, it's a photo feature, so it's not um, a typical, you know, super long-form story, but there are a bunch of photos. And you went with her to specific locations in her life, I think uh, a church, um, it an, an elementary school or sure. a middle school. Uh, why did you pick some some of the locations that you did? Uh, sure, it was, it was more it was more about where she wanted to go, um, and what locations meant the most for her. Um, we went to her church. Um, she was a member of this church. Her and her family before this uh, incident took place. Um, before her daughter was shot. And she, you know, she still goes to the church and finds great solace in the community and uh, and really believes in, in what they preach there. Uh, uh, didn't the church on its website say it's like a, a place for healing? Place for the hurting. Oh, for the hurting. Did you kind of know what they meant by that, or was that just kind of more a broad thing that... Because I think I might have seen that at some other churches. Yeah, I think this specific church... Um, caters more towards people who have seen an unfortunate side of life, for sure. Um, but we, we didn't just go there, you know. We went to an elementary school she used to work at um, where, you know, she she left a year ago and the students still still remember her and come came up to her and, you know, she had a, she had a great impact there. The whole school is covered in art. If you go, go down the hallways, um, you'll uh, see that. Who's Russell something elementary school? Uh, Russell Lowell? Lowell Russell, Russell Elementary School? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Um, but anyway, if, if you look at the art in the hallway, all of that she commissioned through a, uh, through a program. So she was way more than, you know, than her job title or than her, you know, than her job there. She, she, did, she did numerous things. And then did you just go to the elementary school in the church, or did you go to other places? Went to her house. I went to a victim memorial service with her um, and her husband. So many, many of these, um, these places we went, we also went with um, Mr. Burgos um, and some other family members often because they're a, um, you know. So how long were you with the family? How long did it take to shoot all these photos and to get everything needed to have this photo feature? Um, I think about a few weeks, a few weeks. I, I spent a lot of time with them though, um, because I wanted to make sure that I was presenting their story in an accurate way. Um, I think some things, some stories you can just shoot, uh, at, at face value, you know, you can see that there is a meeting going on and you can take photos and you can, you know hear what people are saying at the meeting, but with something so personal, you have to, you have to... You have to follow it and make sure you kind of get everything. Because a meeting lasts from, right. you know, six to seven, and that's it. That's about the lifespan of the meeting, but this story was a little more complex. 
exactly and, more reporting. and, and not okay. just that you know not just you know following it but but understanding the emotions and making sure you're being respectful and um and staying on track with 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 how the family wants to wants their story to be told it's 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 their story you know it's really it's it's something they went through and was there anything specifically that inspired her so after the shooting she didn't have to speak she didn't have to go to washington and and try and and lobby and advocate for gun control or gun you know whatever you want to call it she didn't have to go to this event or that event or travel around the country so why is she doing those things do you happen to know why Sure. Well, what I was sort of getting at earlier when I was talking about, you know, assault-style rifles in sh- the city of Chicago, you know, I, I think more than anything, there is a pain. Uh, she said to me um, that, you know, when your family member dies, of, of whether it be a natural cause or an unnatural cause, it's going to be painful either way. There's still a gap in your life. But there's just something, um, in her opinion, that's unjust and un, un, uncompleted about this whole thing. You know, it was a stray bullet that went through a window and, you know, the the killer was never found. I wish I could talk more about your photo feature, but it's a photo feature. So if you want to see more of that, you can go to ColumbiaChronicle.com or pick it up on the newsstands around the city. But I'd like to end on one more thing that Milagro said, just another reason she's out there advocating and speaking at all these events and doing what she's doing. So now I'm my daughter's voice. So now I do what she probably would have wanted me to do. And even if she did it, we were both stubborn. So maybe I would have done it anyway. (laughs) Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Chronicle Headlines. You can check out all these stories and more in our print edition available on campus, on our website, ColumbiaChronicle.com, and our additional coverage on social media. We are at CC Chronicle on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat, and The Chronicle on Facebook and YouTube. Chronicle Headlines is made possible with the collaboration of the staff of the Columbia Chronicle and WCRX-FM, Chicago's Underground, under the leadership of the chair of the Communications Department of Columbia College Chicago, Suzanne McBride. I've been your host, Blaze Mesa. Until next time.